Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, September 14th, 2018, and Publishers Weekly senior writer Andrew Albanese joins me on the line from New York City. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So this weekend, Andrew, we have a giant hurricane bearing down on the East Coast. And to go with that, we have a giant book arriving from inside the Beltway. Bob Woodward's Fear came out on Tuesday, of course. So tell us, how is Woodward's Fear doing? Yeah, well, right out of the gate, the book has done extremely well with uh, publisher Simon & Schuster reporting a total of 750,000 copies sold as of its first day of publication alone. And that, you know, by any measure, that is an incredible start, of course. Uh, And Barnes & Noble reports that the title was its fastest growing adult title since Go Set a Watchman was released in 2014. Now, that's just what the doctor ordered for Barnes & Noble. But, you know, we should note that these are not necessarily final sales. Uh, that three-quarter of a million figure, that includes pre-orders and the first day of print books, e-books, audiobooks, all formats. So, you know, we're going to see exactly what's what once the book scan numbers from Nielsen show up at, for MPD, I should say, show up in a few days. But I think it's fair to say all those Bob Woodward books that are out there, they're not coming back. They're not being returned. Those are going to be bought. And, of course, you can check uh, those figures on the Publishers Weekly website next week. We'll have a report on that about Woodward's hot start, and there will be something in Monday's issue of the magazine as well. I should note, too, that beyond Barnes & Noble, the book is certainly good news for indie booksellers as well, and the indies are telling us that uh, the title's moving off their shelves and that they expect this to outpace sales from uh, the year's previous blockbusters, which include, of course, Michael Wolff, James Comey, and most recently, Omarosa Menegal Newman, and for this simple reason because Woodward has the pedigree, booksellers tell us. Well, indeed, I'm seeing a trend there. I think Andrew, Michael Wolf, James Comey, Omarosa, and now Bob Woodward. And when Michael Wolf's book first appeared in January, you expected we would not be talking about him by springtime, because, as you said, Michael Wolf was no Bob Woodward. And that was in the context of talking about Macmillan's handling of the Wolf title, or mishandling. It was out of stock immediately after it dropped, and for weeks after that. So, by contrast, how is SNS prepared? for Bob Woodward's book. Yeah, so Michael Wolff is not Bob Woodward, though I will say that a lot of what was in Michael Wolff's book is now being sort of proven out by Bob Woodward's book. But at the same token, you know, speaking about how the books were published, Simon & Schuster is, is not Macmillan here either. You know, our listeners will indeed recall that Macmillan, in my estimation, just botched the publication of Wolff's book, you know, despite the success, despite the fact that it did sell a million copies. But maybe they were trying for a big splash on day one, but Macmillan had embargoed the Michael Wolf book. And that meant few booksellers and librarians had any information about it. There were not pre-pub reviews. So the print run, you know, there was really not much to base the print run on. So the print run was small and it got overwhelmed immediately when, you know, golly gee, people wanted to read this explosive first book coming out of the White House. Who saw that coming? But you know, no such problem with Simon & Schuster. You know, they printed a million copies of Woodward's book in preparation for publication. And I'll tell you, we're going to see all of them go out the door pretty much right away. Now, in fairness to Macmillan, uh, I'll go back and say, you know, to the point that I made earlier that Wolf is not Bob Woodward. Simon & Schuster knows what they have in Bob Woodward. And this book, the text of this book, is sure delivering the goods. On the other hand, I'm not sure that Macmillan kind of really knew how Michael Wolf, not exactly a Bob Woodward household name, would have been received. Still, if you ask Michael Wolf's agent, Andrew Wiley, if Macmillan got the publication right, <laughs> I could guess his answer. I think he would like to have seen a million preprints of that book out there as well. Um, 
But, you know, Simon Schuster has a few other advantages as well. And the midterms are one of them. I expect this book is going to be fodder in the media right up through November at least. Uh, And also, you know, it's a perfect storm for Simon & Schuster, not to to make light of the hurricane down there, but in a positive way. They're going to see Bob Woodward in the press, I think, for two months, talking about the Trump administration right up to the election. And I think they're going to be going back to press very soon for more copies. Well, I I think your prediction is rather safer than those of uh, the meteorologists when it comes to the hurricane. And we certainly wish everyone well down in the southeast corner of the United States. And also this week, Andrew P.W. reported that BNN officials are saying they are going to turn a corner soon. Can a big book like Bud Woodward's Fear really help them turn the page in their latest troubles? And namely, that would be, of course, the lawsuit filed by the recently fired CEO. In a perfect world, absolutely. You know, a spike like this in quarterly sales for the retail Taylor would certainly be a very welcome narrative change. And in the PW article this week, Barnes & Noble's officials, you know, they said all the fundamentals are in place for a turnaround. For example, CFO Alan Lindstrom and Chairman Len Riggio pointed to improving sales trends during the most recent quarter, uh, and that has extended into the second quarter. You know, that's a reason they say for optimism about the prospects for the holiday season. And, you know, sure, sales were still down, but the rate of decline, they say, has also been uh, dropping. And they suggest that the company has finally stopped the bleeding there, at least in terms of comp sales. But at the same time, barnesandnoble.com is just not done well. And that's you know, the online is where so many people are buying books these days. And they also acknowledged another mistake in that article, which I thought was interesting. And that was the launch of those boutique bookstores that featured restaurants. We talked about them late last year, I think, on the show. Barnes & Noble just doesn't have the expertise to operate restaurants, Riggio acknowledged. And you know, I'm just going to let that one hang out there for a moment, that Barnes & Noble is quickly acknowledging they can't run restaurants. I'll just let my our listeners ruminate on all of the things that Barnes & Noble has proven <laughs> that they're not doing well right now. Uh, and then I'll get back to the question at hand, which is, yes, big books can certainly help Barnes & Noble change its trajectory, change the narrative in theory. But I'm going to go back to the lawsuit that you mentioned as well. And I'll, I'm going to go on record and say that as long as Demos Parneros' lawsuit is out there, nothing good can happen. Barnes & Noble needs to make that go away, period. No good comes from that lawsuit. You can't win it. And frankly, with the midterms and the Bob Woodward book dominating the headlines, tackle this now before the holidays. This would be a perfect time to to make some headlines that will just be drowned out by other things. When CCC's Friday podcast returns, Andrew Albanese looks for help in sorting fake news from the real thing. So he pays a visit to the local library. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. It's Friday, September 14th, 2018. I'm Chris Keneally for Copyright Clearance Center's Beyond the Book. We are catching up on the week's news in book publishing with Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly. And in Monday's issue of PW, Andrew, you take a look at the state of library reference and reference publishing, and you feature an author and librarian Beyond the Book listeners will recognize. That's right. You know, reference is kind of a sleepy subject in theory, right? But in fact, not so much, uh, at least not in practice these days. And we'll stipulate this right up front. 
the internet and the rise of search engines like Google, yes, they've absolutely changed the game forever for reference librarians and publishers. You know, over the last two decades, you know, information that used to be forced into these book-shaped containers and housed in special sections of the library, that's all become freed. Information today is easily accessible, it's cheap, it's often free, and really powerful. I mean, who needs an atlas anymore when you've got Google Maps right on your phone that can walk you wherever you need to go? So Google may not deliver you the perfect answer every time, uh, but suffice it to say that, yes, librarians today are pretty comfortable offloading the job of answering basic questions, which they used to have books and databases for, and still do, but they're, they're happy offloading those questions off to the internet. And as PW columnist Sari Feldman, who's of course is the executive director of the Cuyahoga County Public Library in Cleveland reports, um, libraries are now redirecting those efforts and resources that were once dedicated to traditional reference programs into making classes and things that are just having a greater impact in their community, whether that's tax help or job search help or citizenship classes or social services like you know having a food bank or whatever, or even lending ukuleles out to people. You know, librarians are redefining what reference means in this digital age. In 2018, Sari notes that libraries have survived this seismic blast provided by the internet, and now they've transformed library reference into something that's really, truly powerful. But the challenge they face in the internet age is different now. There's one of authority fake news, this war on trust, so to speak. And on that score, I had a chance to interview Donald Barkley for this piece, who is the university librarian at the University of California, Merced, and the author of a new book, Fake News, Propaganda, and Plain Old Lies from Roman and Littlefield. I got his expert take, and indeed, that's a name that should sound familiar to Beyond the Book listeners, because I first learned about this book from you, because you did a great interview with Barclay on the very same subject recently. I think what we're dealing with is, you know, people have used lies and half-lies and half-truths for a long time to get what they want. Um to mislead people, to get their way, whether it's money, power, whatever. So that's nothing new. What we face in the digital age, and we've been facing for a while, is the sheer amount of information that we have to deal with. Now people are overwhelmed with all this information. The cost of transmitting information has dropped to almost nothing. Uh, if you think, you know, in the 80s, if you wanted to... Um, share some crackpot theory, you would probably have to, and you didn't have access to newspapers and TV, you would have to pay to have a lot of copies made and then distribute those copies on paper. That's a very expensive proposition, very limiting. But now you can sit at your computer and, you know, send out one thing after another after another at an extremely low marginal cost. Most of those things won't get picked up. They won't get people's attention. But, you know, if one of them breaks through, you might get a million people to read something you wrote, which is, you know, a different thing. But also, it's a very tempting thing for someone who wants to get a story out there for whatever reason. Indeed, Donald Barclay has a lot to share on how librarians can play a role in piercing through fake news. And I guess you would have talked to him about all of that uh, in your interview, Andrew. How does it relate, though, to library reference work these days? Yeah, so I asked Don a, num a question about a number of topics, but, but the nut of our talk really came down to this. As more libraries are now hosting these workshops for the public on, on fake news and information literacy, trying to give people some of the tools they need to work through these issues, you know, what advice would he give to librarians who are putting together programs like this, you know, basic 
basic information literacy programs? And his answer was really illuminating. Basically, what he said was try to be neutral. And that's good advice. But he didn't mean neutral in the sense that, you know, you have to respect the stork as being a viable competing view of childbirth. But in recognizing what we call the emotional component of information, he cited the recent op-ed published anonymously in the New York Times as a good example. You know, the people who don't like Donald Trump are going, yeah, we knew that was happening. But what if Breitbart, he said, had published an anonymous op-ed like that during the Obama administration? How would people have reacted to that? And the point is, it's easier to be critical of things that don't resonate with you. Uh, he went on to explain that when something does resonate, whether it makes you scared or angry, happy or smug, like, you know, I knew that was right. Those are the things that you really should probably check out. Make sure that the information is credible. In essence, he says the impact that information has on someone, whether it challenges or reaffirms their beliefs, their strongly held beliefs, that's going to determine what kind of effort they put into evaluating the source of that information. Now, this is all a tall, a tall order these days. And I'll go back to where we started our conversation today. Bob Woodward, you have Donald Trump going on Twitter to complain that Bob Woodward has credibility problems. I mean, irony died at that moment, but it shows you what librarians are up against. As Bob Woodward himself has said in recent days, the White House has declared a war on truth. I mean, just let that sink in for a second. How frightening is that? But how much can libraries really do to help people parse their sources better when you've got the president of the United States out there who seems to be actively and on purpose undermining our faith in the truth? The result, Barclay says, goes beyond the fact that, you know, there are some people out there who are going to think that the New York Times is no better than Breitbart. But the real problem is that the waters are just getting so muddied now and that so many people out there are just thinking, well, both sides are corrupt. Everything is BS. Uh, and that's just not a good position to be in. That, he says, is the fight libraries really face. And that's one of being a reliable holder of the public's trust. Well, as a reliable holder of our listeners' trust, Andrew Albanese, we turn to you every Friday and are very happy to do that. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Over many years, McKeel Coleman has honed his skills as an advocate for diversity and inclusion in publishing. As a senior vice president at Elsevier in Amsterdam, as well as on his travels around the globe as president of the International Publishers Association. Recently, Coleman spoke with me about why it is important for publishers to make LGBTIQ workplace inclusion a key principle in their hiring practices. Why does diversity pay off? And I think, yeah, there are five important reasons. One is it helps in attracting and retaining top talent. It also improves uh, what you call like the customer orientation. Um, it leads to better employee satisfaction. The decision-making process is better. And companies which are more diverse are also more creative and more innovative. Um, it's you know not so surprising that LGBT employees are happier at companies that are strong on diversity. But it's also the straight employees that are more likely to apply to more diverse companies and feel happier there and stay longer. So it pays off for retention as well. Creating inclusive cultures in publishing. Next on Beyond the Book. 
Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, builders of unique solutions that connect content and rights in contextually relevant ways through software and professional services. CCC helps people navigate vast amounts of data to discover actionable insights, enabling them to innovate and make informed decisions. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening, and join us again soon on Beyond the Book. 